Exodus chapter 26. We're going to read the whole chapter. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the, cur- of the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain of the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle. 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double, sorry, fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the, end, at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ramskins dyed red, and over that a covering of other durable leather. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be ten cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make twenty frames for the south side of the tabernacle, and make forty silver bases to go under them, two bases for each frame. One, on, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corners at the far end. At these two corners, they, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west, at the far end of the tabernacle. The center crossbar is to extend from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite it on the south side. 
for the entrance to the tent, tent to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain, and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and cast five bronze bases for them. Visual aids are powerful teaching tools. I wonder what is the best visual aid you have ever seen. I think the best visual aid I've seen is a book. It's a Bible uh, where you use it for teaching to children or in assemblies, and as you flick the pages from one place, it's a blank book, and you say, some people, the Bible is just a blank book. You flick it from another location, it's a black and white book. You see a bit, but not everything. You flick it from another location, and suddenly it's a colorful book, and you can make lots of good points about how, as you see the Lord Jesus, you see the Bible opened up for you. Maybe you've seen a better one, but visual aids are wonderful teaching tools. And and the Bible is full of visual aids, isn't it? Uh, The Lord has given us uh, many visual aids that we enjoy as the Lord's people. We have the Lord's Supper, as we remembered this morning. We have baptism as we rejoice, as we celebrate the, the work of conversion. But The tabernacle, the subject of Exodus 26, is certainly perhaps one of the largest visual aids that God has given. Tabernacle uh, means dwelling place, or it can mean tent. And the purpose of the tabernacle, as we heard it described in Exodus 26, is to teach us truths about God. That's what visual aids are there for in Scripture. They're to point to the nature, the character of who God is, to tell us something of how we can approach this great and glorious God, and to point most gloriously to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our passage this evening in Exodus 26 is an elaborate description of the tabernacle. It's amazing, isn't it? As you think about the detail, you've got beautiful curtains of of fine linen and different colors. You've got gold clasp. You've got acacia wood. You've got different foundations for those wooden pieces in different kinds of metals. You've got cherubim on some of the curtains. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And maybe as we hear this picture, we might have two immediate questions that come to mind. The first is, if you're anything like me, you hear something, you read something like that, what do you think? Can we make a model? Yeah? Can we make a model? Because you want to try and do that. And maybe you've seen a model of the the tabernacle, and that can be helpful in all kinds of ways. But actually, I think it's rather hard to do. It's interesting uh, in the passage that whilst there is a description of the tabernacle in some of the details in our passage, if you look down at verse 30, there we read, set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown to you on the mountain. That's speaking to Moses. So it's apparent that God gave Moses greater detail when he went up the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he knew more about the tabernacle than we know from Exodus 26. Of course, what is recorded for us is sufficient for us to learn from it, 
but perhaps not enough for us to put together a model. So, for example, if you read in some of the books, there's some debate as to whether the roof of the tabernacle was flat. But, of course, if that was the case and you had rain, you would have pooling of water on the roof. So someone proposed that the roof was pitched in some way. But it doesn't any, there's no reference in the passage to a, a higher beam at the center that you would need for a pitched roof. So there's kinds of questions that we're just not clear about. So perhaps it's not ideal to produce a model of a tabernacle. That's the first question. But perhaps the second one that's linked to that then is how much, therefore, can we learn from the detail of the tabernacle? Now, God has reasons for every one of the details recorded here. But we may not know them all. Mystery is allowed. God's entitled to mystery. He's God. He has purpose even in the mystery that we not may be able to draw lines between every element of the tabernacle and some particular teaching in Scripture. I think it's safest as we come to the tabernacle this evening for us to look for the main things that are communicated here by the description rather than to speculate about the specific details. William Tyndale, the great Bible translator who wrote such a homely Bible translation and bringing it into the English language, said these words. A truth derived solely from an Old Testament picture or type without a clear statement of the truth elsewhere, is as much use as a tale of Robin Hood. The point he's making is that if we just have a detail in the tabernacle description and we don't have a statement of this truth elsewhere, well, then we're speculating to extrapolate from a detail. And we need to be careful about that. So... In order to be careful, I want us to think about the main message that's taught by the tabernacle. And with those thoughts in mind, we're going to think about three words as we look together at the passage this evening. Three words as we think about what God is communicating through this amazing, amazing tent that is his dwelling place in the wilderness. And the first is this. We don't have any PowerPoint, just three simple words. First word, holy. Holy. The tabernacle teaches God's holiness. That is to say, it teaches the moral purity of God and his separateness from sin. His glory as we see it in his moral purity. Now, where do we see that? We see it in the beauty of the tent. Look down at verses 1 to 6. In verse 1 to 6, you have a description of the curtain that was hung on the inside of the tabernacle. It was on the sides and on the roof. Now you read this. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. Great detail and great artistry. Beautiful materials. But not only that in the curtain, you've got... Beautiful materials in the precious metals that are used. You notice there's mention of bronze and of silver and of gold there in the description of how it's to be put together. There's beautiful materials, but also there's beautiful artistry. Great skill would be needed to assemble this tabernacle. 
in verse 1, there is reference to a skilled worker needed to construct this astonishing curtain that's on the inside of the tabernacle, not seen from the outside, just there on the inside. And then as you jump down to verse 31, you see again, we need a, this is the curtain that, this, that is there to separate the holy place, that's the tabernacle in general, from the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in verse 31, we're told that it's made uh, by, again, a skilled worker. If you jump down to verse 36, the curtain at the entrance of the tent that they would see from the outside there, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with finely twisted linen, was to be the work of an embroiderer. Great skill would be needed for all of the construction. You have beautiful materials. You have skilled and beautiful artistry. You know, when you uh, redo your kitchen at home, there are a number of different options, aren't there, for you to choose? You can go to B&Q and you can get the the prefabricated kitchen that's sort of... uh, You get it in a box and you put it together yourself and you do it all yourself in that sense. You can go to a slightly more expensive option uh, where it's a custom-built kitchen that you buy in and it comes assembled and you put the doors on in that sense. You can go a bit further and you could have something handmade that's custom-made for the house. And of course, those options have varying degrees of quality and varying degrees of associated cost. But this construction... The tabernacle of God, well, it's no off-the-shelf prefab, is it? This is a construction of the highest quality. It is custom-made of the highest specification. Why? Well, the dwelling place of God is lovely because God himself is lovely. The greatness of the tabernacle is necessary because of the greatness and the holiness of the God who is coming to dwell in this tent. It's captured so powerfully, isn't it, by Psalm 84, verse 1, where the psalmist there expresses that great statement, Oh, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. This is the God He dwells there in the tabernacle. A pure and holy God demands a custom-built and beautiful dwelling. So you see the holiness of God in the beauty of the tent, but also you see the holiness of God in the way in which the tent is constructed as we look at the detail of what's going on. And here's what's really interesting. As you progress from the outside closer and closer into the tent, coming to the center of the tent, the holy of holies, the, the most holy place, you have increasing degrees of sophistication and beauty. Hesitate to use the illustration, but it's almost like an onion. You know where you have layers, and the outer layer is rougher. You always take that one off. You don't cook with that one. The inner layer is better. And then as you go further and further, it becomes purer and purer. And there's that sense of what's going on here. The nearer you get to the center, the level of beauty and the preciousness increases because at the center of the tabernacle is the most holy place, the holy of holies, the place where God was said to dwell, the place where the high priest could only go once every year. That was the place where 
You had the Ark of the Covenant. That was the inner holy of holies. So where do we see this? Well, think about the structure of the tent. The tent itself has a number of layers to the covering to the tabernacle. On the outside is simple, strong goat's hair. It's durable material for desert life. As you come inside, you get to that red leather. It's ramskins leather. Then you come to this finely woven curtain with, with cherub that's only seen on the inside of the curtain. From there in the inside of the tents. But not only that, as you progress into further and closer to the Holy of Holies, the quality of metal increases. You go from bronze on the outside to silver as you get closer, to gold as you get even closer. Now here's a little detail. If you have a Bible, look at verse 36. Look down at verse 36. Boys and girls, look at this in particular. I wonder if you can spot something here. Here the description. This is the curtain used at the front of the tabernacle, the tent. For the entrance of the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. That's at the very front. Now look back at verse 31. And this is the curtain that is right in front of the Holy of Holies, separating the people from where God dwelt. And listen to this one. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely skilled linen, sorry, finely twisted linen, with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Now, boys and girls, what's the extra detail on that second curtain? Did you spot it? Go on, shout it out. The cherubim. Well done, young man. That's it. Now, what's going on here? Again, it's increasing degrees of sophistication. The closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the more special and precious it becomes because the nearer you get to God, the more precious the materials are. What's the key lesson? The key lesson is that sinful people cannot draw near to a holy God. The preciousness communicates the beauty, the holiness, the greatness of God's. See it in another way with those cherubim. Because remember, the cherubim are there on the curtain just outside the most holy place. And when you hear cherubim, they're angels. What does that make you think of? Where else have you seen cherubim guarding a special place? Is it not Genesis 3? After the fall, when Adam and Eve sin? What happens? God puts angels there guarding access back to the garden where God dwelt. Comes out as well in verse 33. As this curtain is described that was there between the rest of the temple and the most holy place. We read verse 33. Hang the curtain from the class and place the ark of the covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. The holiness of God reminds us that sinful people cannot draw near. And there's all these elements of this. Now this is a crucial reminder of the seriousness of sin in light of the holiness of God. And if, if you know anything about other religions, you'll know that almost every other religion teaches that our sin can be outweighed by our good works. 
talks about a kind of balancing of you, you do enough good and it outweighs the bad and if the scales are just tipped in your favor at the judgment day, then you'll go to heaven. So say other religions. I put it to you though, other religions do not have a right sense of the seriousness of sin, of the weight of our sin, of our moral guilt before the God of heaven because if we can make it up by our good works, well, we're not really feeling the weight of it, are we, friends? We're not really feeling the depth of it before the pure and holy and righteous God of heaven because as you see the holiness of God's, And you look honestly at your own heart. What do you say? You say, this is a problem I cannot fix. This is a difficulty I can do nothing about. Because some problems are too big for us to fix. The last uh, week or so, uh, our fridge has started to misbehave. And um, as I want to do, I decided to try and fix it. I emptied the fridge... And I I looked it up online, I did some checking online first, and worked out that I thought what was going wrong was a particular part, but I knew it was behind the big panel on the inside of the fridge. Now, don't don't this at home, boys and girls. Yeah, but here's what I did, took the fridge apart, took everything out of the fridge, all around the kitchen, very carefully put all around the kitchen, and I screwed off the back of the fridge and opened up the back of the fridge. Big part comes out the fridge, making sure it'll go back in. And I thought, I can fix this. And I started to look at it, and there was this black stuff all over the radiator bit. And I thought, hang on a minute. Is that refrigerant leaking out of the radiator? I phoned up my friend, who's good at these kind of things, and I sent him a picture. And he said, Matthew, hang on a minute. I think that might be the refrigerant. That's beyond your pay grade. Some problems are too big for you to fix. Now, I did some more investigation. I found another fridge guy, and he said, it's not the refrigerant, it's something else. And we could fix the sensor, and the fridge is okay, and the Seymour house is happy again and safe, I assure you. But some problems are too big for us to fix, aren't they? Human sin, your sin, my sin, is too big for us to fix. Let us not be so proud as to think that our good deeds could make up for the wrong that we have done. God is too holy. We are too sinful. But the glorious message of the Bible is what, friends? The glorious message of the Bible is that in Christ we can draw near. You know, if we think there are at least two occasions in the Gospels, and Mark is perhaps the strongest, as he describes the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 15. Jump with me to Mark chapter 15, verses 37 and 38. What do we read? We read that as the Lord Jesus breathes his final breath, as he dies there on the cross in Mark chapter 15, Verses 37 and 38, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's showing you and I what Jesus' death has achieved. It's achieved access into the presence of the living God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't think that 
temple curtain was a shower curtain. Don't think it was a bed sheet. It was said it was a width of a man's hand. And it goes from top to bottom. It falls to the ground. And what is proclaimed by that reality? That if you believe in him, you have full access to the living God. And not only that, there is no sin that will restore and rehang that curtain because it's torn. Praise God for Christ that we can draw near to this holy God. So the first word, holy, and secondly and more briefly, the second word, heavenly. Holy, heavenly. The temple communicates the sense that worship of the living God should have this sense of heavenliness. I've really struggled this week to find a way to express this. So I've grasped for the language because we're trying to get a number of things across as we think about this. It is not that we could never draw near because we can in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not that that we believe in in a kind of bells and smells, mystic worship. But there is, biblically, a sense in which worship of the living God should have that heavenly sense to it. That sense that there is nothing like it in all the world. Now, where do we see that in the temple? Well, we see it in this sense of mystery about the temple. Someone reminded me uh, this week in my reading, one of the authors, um, and we can forget this, that only the Levites, one of the tribes, one of the 12 tribes who were the priests, were allowed inside the tabernacle. So all the women, all the children, and all the men from the 11 tribes, what do they see? They see a goat hair cover and the curtain at the front. All they have to know what's going on is the words describing it in the scriptures. Maybe you could ask others of what was happening, of the Levites perhaps, yes. But, but like us, they needed to live by faith, learning from the pictures that God had given in the scriptures and living by faith and not by sight. There's a mystery to what is going on. And even in the details of what are, discovered, what are described, there is a sense of heavenly otherness. It's different. The tabernacle is not very much like other ancient Near Eastern temples. It's simpler, smaller. There are no statues, there are no pictures. But in the details, there is this heavenly sense of what is going on. The, the curtain that, remember, you've got the goat's hair on the outside, a number of one curtains that line that. Then the inner curtain, only seen by those stood on the inside, is this beautifully ornate curtain that has this sense of heavenly otherness. There are cherubim there on the curtain of the Holy of Holies, guarding that, but also all around on the top and the sides. 
this heavenly sense. The, the materials used in there, in the tabernacle, particularly have this sense of heavenly splendor, particularly in sense of the gold. Because as you go to Revelation 21 and verse 18, you read that the new Jerusalem there is made of gold. There, gold is this heavenly color. It is heavenly, it is different, it is special, it is other. And God is very prescriptive about the details. Again and again, if you look at the key words, it's make, it's make, it's according to plan. God is prescriptive. But he's prescriptive that it would be heavenly and other. And that sense of it being heavenly other and given with precise details teaches us something about how we worship God today as his people. That just as the Israelites were called to follow the command of God, we are called to follow the command of God in how we worship. We're not to seek to follow the patterns of the world, but the commands of Scripture. And that means that the worship of the people of God will feel quite different. It will feel quite other. Because following God's commands leads to that sense of distinctive worship. Now, if you look at the history of the church and through the ages, you'll see the church again and again seeks to try to be like the world in their worship rather than to worship according to Scripture. The church is seeking to be like the world, perhaps in terms of the music and the experience and the atmosphere. You know, today, we hear of churches where there's lights and special effects, where it feels more like a West End musical. And that's not what it should be, friends. Biblical worship doesn't aim to be like the world. It aims to follow God's instruction as we find it in the Scriptures so that it might have the sense of that other heavenly difference, so there is nothing like it. Of course, it's a false logic to say, let's be like the world, that, that people might come in. That's often why people do it. Because why? Why is it a false logic? Well, it's a false logic because the world can do it better if we try to be like the world. And the worship of God's people should be different from the world. Now, there will be similarities. We will sing. <laughs> and singing doesn't just happen in the church. It happens in lots of other settings. We will use instruments and that happens in other settings too, but we do that because God commands us to do that. Fundamentally, our goal is different. We are not seeking to impress with excellent speech, with slick presentation, with outstanding music, but rather what? That we might have a sense of heaven as we gather. That the response of all of us might be the response that Paul says would be the response of unbelievers who come into the church in Corinth. Do you remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25? The unbelievers might come in and say what? God is really among you. That's our goal as we worship, that we would have that sense of God in our midst. Not that it is unintelligible, because 1 Corinthians 14 is clear that it should be understandable. But that as we worship together, we would say, there's nothing else like it. That heavenly otherness. 
Don't long that worship would be like the world. Long that worship might be a taste of heaven. Pray that as we come to worship as a people of God, that might be our experience. Prepare that we might come and have that attitude. Long that we more might have this sense of God in our midst. That's what the tabernacle was communicating as well, this heavenliness. So we've seen holy, we've seen heavenly, and then we come thirdly and finally to hopeful. Our third H, hopeful. And here we see that the tabernacle communicated hope of God dwelling with his people. Now where do we get this? Well, a number of things to highlight. First of all, see the hope in the presence of the tent with the people of God. What is God saying? When God says, make me a tent that I may be in your midst, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to dwell near. I'm going to draw near to you. God is going to be with them. What hope that gives them. Secondly, notice the hope that comes from the location of the tent. Where is the tent placed in the tab, among the encampment of the Israelites. It's not in our passage, but it's known from elsewhere. Right in the center. No one is nearer. No one is further. God dwelling with his people and dwelling in the center. So all can access in that sense. Notice that the hope that comes from the very nature of the fact that God says, build me a tent. Someone wrote this week that God commands curtains and not walls so that he may have a house that is movable because the Israelites are going to have to move as well. They're going to be a nomadic tent-dwelling people. So as they move, as God commands them to move, he is going to move with them. He's going to be with them. And there's also hope in the material there on the outside of the tent because it's, it's just common material used, that goat's hurt, for a sturdy tent. There's that sense of the Lord saying, yes, I am holy, I am other, I am heavenly, but I'm also there with you. He's there with his people. And friends, what hope that gives to the people of God. What hope that gives. If you... Keep your finger in Exodus 26 and jump forward to Psalm 46. The Psalms reflect so much, don't they, on the temple, on the tabernacle and the temple. Psalm 46, what do we read? Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake at their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. What's the great hope that comes from God dwelling with us? It's confidence, isn't it? That the Lord isn't going to leave. He's with us through everything. And our privilege, our confidence today, this hope that grows and grows through Scripture, is that God is with us 
even more fully and gloriously and greatly than he was there in the tabernacle. Why? Well, because Christ has come. Christ has made his dwelling with us, as Simeon reminded us last week in John chapter 1. We've got to go there because the word tabernacle is used. I'm sure you know John chapter 1 and verse 14, where we have this description of the coming of the Son of God into the world. John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling is the word tabernacled. Jesus Christ came to dwell with us as God dwelt with his people there in the tabernacle. But not only that, friends, because Jesus came and he died on the cross for us, because Jesus came and he rose from the dead for us, because Jesus came and he ascended into glory for us, what did he do? He sent his Holy Spirit, who comes from heaven, the third person of the Trinity, makes home in each of our hearts. So what? So that we become today the dwelling place of God. The God of heaven dwells in you as a Christian, because the Spirit dwells in you as a believer. So God is with you today even more closely than he was there in the tabernacle because he is within you as a believer. It's amazing, isn't it? The progression, the hope, the glory, that all that was pictured there in the tabernacle is now by faith your experience if you're a Christian. And so we don't need to go on a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. We don't need to get the cement mixers out to rebuild a tabernacle or a temple or anything else. Because the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the living God, is you, Christian. But our problem is... We have such small thoughts of who we are and what we do as the people of God. The tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God is, yes, the individual Christian, but the scripture is also clear that it's the people of God collectively. The church is described as that building in which God dwells. And so we would rightly say that we as a people of God are the house of God. We are the house of the Lord, not as a building, but as a people. That God comes in a a special way, and particularly as we gather to worship, God comes and promises that he will meet with us in that special sense, such that there is something different to what I do, that when I sit down in the morning and I have fellowship with God in my morning devotions. That's a good, that's a glorious thing, that's a great thing. But it's even more precious. It's even more glorious. It's even more special to come and meet with the people of God to worship the living God because God is especially present in the gathering of his people. A couple of weeks ago, before Christmas, I visited a a local primary school and they invited me in to talk about church buildings. Now, um, (laughs) 
I felt a little bit inadequate because um, I came into the building here at Heath Terrace and Lucy kindly got me some pictures and I took some pictures and put together a PowerPoint. But it's not really that impressive, is it? Sorry, I, I mean anything to those who spent hours, years on this building. <laughs> but compared to other church buildings that the children had been taken around or seen pictures of, I couldn't really compete. I, mean, I could show them a baptism. That was pretty special. They got excited about a baptism. But as they looked at the building, they were struggling for details. And I, I was emphasizing, I was trying to emphasize that what matters so much for us as Bible Christians, New Testament Christians, is not the fabric of the building. It's the people who gather in the building. What's really precious and what's really special is the people. We're thankful for the building, but that's why we can meet in North Lamb School or here. Or It's okay because we're the people of God. That's the assembly. That's the dwelling place of God. And I was trying so hard to get this across. And then right at the end, one of the teachers said, ah, I've got it. I never got it why churches like yours were so simple, but now I do. Because what matters to you is the people, not the place. And I thought, praise the Lord, at least the teacher's got it. Maybe the... <laughs> <laughs> the kids have got it as well. I was trying to get that across. But friends, as we close, I'll leave you this application. Let us think highly of God's house, by which I mean us. You know, if you're joining us on the live stream, we're delighted you're joining us. And some can't come physically. We understand that. But if you're joining just out of convenience... Please come in person. We'd love to have you with us. And not only is there preciousness that comes from the collective gathering of the people of God, there is great hope from the promise that God dwells with you personally. Because it means that God is with you everywhere and in everything. There is nowhere you can go if you're a Christian where the God of heaven is not there with you. There's no scary situation at school you might face. There's no hard meeting with a doctor that you might face. There's no sorrowful season of grief. He's there in the deepest depths and the highest peaks. And so you and I can rightly say our experience is Psalm 84 verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. And yet our learning, sorry, yet our yearning, yet our future hope is of an even greater enjoyment of God's presence. What you and I know now personally, what you and I know collectively as we gather to worship, it's great, it's glorious, but there's even better to come. Psalm 84 verse 2 says, my soul yearns even fates for the courts of the living God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Friends, one day that hope, that hopeful thing that the tabernacle was pointing towards, the dwelling of God 
with his people coming in the Lord Jesus Christ. The dwelling of God coming internally through the work of the Spirit, but then what's the future hope? That we will know the presence of God in a world free from sin, in our bodies and our natures free from sin. And one day, there will be no more yearning. One day, there will be no more faith because all will be sight. And what a sight it will be.